Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Books about brilliant scientists and their quests to uncrack the mysteries of the natural world engage us for their drama, their stories of obsessed geniuses experimenting again and again in the face of failure, not to mention their relentless persistence in a world of colleagues whose more conventional ideas lag behind their precocious insights. Today we're talking about brilliant scientists in another kind of struggle, the world of women in renowned institutions that systemically favor men, causing them to compete for status, grants, salary, publication, lab space, and assistance, not to mention tenure, and even credit for their work. My guest is Kate Zernike, a reporter for the New York Times and a member of the team that won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting about al-Qaeda. Before that, she worked for the Boston Globe, where she broke the story of MIT's admission that it had discriminated against women on its faculty. At a time, at that time, a groundbreaking acknowledgement that served as a pace setter for promoting gender equality in higher education nationwide. Her new book tells that story. It's called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Kate Zernike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So if you ask the average person to free associate on the professions that involve competition, I believe a huge majority would think of sports. But after reading your book, I would say that science research, certainly in the field of microbiology, is as cutthroat as any occupation out there. Can you talk about that? Yes. So that's absolutely true. Um, competition, you know, it's competition for you know, it starts with the competition to get accepted by a particular, you know, to go work in a particular lab. And then once you're, once you're running your own lab, it's competition for grants. But then it's also, the whole world is built on credit. You know, the whole world is, is, it's a little, what have you done for me lately? You know, what have you discovered lately? And so to get, just starting out as a scientist, you need to get credit for what you've done for your discoveries because the way that you get tenure at a university is or the way that you become known in your field is for other people obviously to recognize your work and to know you for particular discoveries but particularly in institutions so in my case i'm writing about mit but in in universities to get tenure they the university will go out to experts so go out to the wider world and say tell us what you think of this person and so to get tenure you need you know sometimes more than a dozen letters saying this person has done really groundbreaking science so if you don't get credit for those ideas or if someone else is taking credit for those ideas you're not going to get tenure so it's really the competition for sort but science also proceeds at a pretty slow pace sometimes glacial and discoveries are sometimes can seem incremental. And so it's it's really a matter of kind of people claiming, well, this is this, you know, this is this is the, the stage that I got it, and then that person advanced it this way, and that person advanced it this way. But you know, we've especially as as biology has become more competitive, and we've now seen the, the rise of the biotechnology uh, industry, that's where it's especially competitive because there's more money at stake. The book focuses on a scientist named Nancy Hopkins. Tell us about her and her work and, and why her career serves as a 
great illustration of what so many women scientists endured. Yeah. Um, well, I, I say in the book, you know, her, she, Nancy Hopkins started out her life as Nancy Doe, which was um, something I didn't realize about her until I'd known her for 20 years. But um, she really is sort of the Jane Doe of science, uh, she, she, the Jane Doe of the story of the struggle of women in science. Nancy Hopkins in 1999, which is when I first met her, was uh, led a group of women, this group of 16 women at MIT, who pushed MIT to acknowledge that it had discriminated against the women on its faculty. And they, MIT did this because these women had gone around and gathered really pretty irrefutable data to show how they were, how they were you know, treated less well than men. Uh, so smaller grants, less lab space, um, you know, worse teaching assignments, all, those, all the categories that you mentioned that, that when we started the conversation in your introduction. Um, but it was also just what they what they saw as what they described as marginalization, um, and it was really sort of you know the pushing aside of women as they get into their later years of their career. So there were no women, uh, no woman had ever been head of a department or head of a center at MIT. All the men were sort of being groomed for leadership, groomed for these bigger positions, which of course came with bigger salaries. And the women were sort of, as they said, they were they were merely tolerated. You know that everyone knew that MIT wanted more women there, but they weren't. You know, the institution wasn't doing much to to attract more women, and it wasn't doing much to make sure that those women stayed. Um, so Nancy had led this group uh, starting in 1994. It was a five-year effort. Um, and she'd started out because she had, over a period of about 20 years, come to see that she that other women and then that she herself was being discriminated against. So the book takes us back to the book, The Exceptions, takes us back to the start of Nancy's career. Because, you know, as I said earlier, she really is this model. Um, and it starts us with Nancy's a she's a 19 year old junior at Radcliffe, which is, of course, the girls version of Harvard. Um, and she's struggling to figure out what to do with her life. Uh, she her father has died the year before. She has the sense that she um, that she wants to do something really important and that she has to do it yeah in the next 10 years because or there's just 10 years to do this because she knows she's going to marry her boyfriend at the time and she's got a year until graduation so she thinks okay i've got one year until graduation to find this like the thing that i'm going to do passionately for 10 years this career that i'm going to have and then i have to leave and have kids and she has this idea that she wants to alleviate human suffering this is not a woman to <laughs> to set small goals um and so she goes to this one-hour lecture taught by James Watson four months after he and Francis Crick have won the Nobel Prize for decoding the structure of DNA. And in that one-hour lecture, Nancy completely falls in love with the study of science, and in particular, genetics and the, and the power of DNA and all the things that DNA is going to be able to tell us. So in Nancy's 19-year-old mind, DNA is ultimately going to be able to tell us why some people are nice, why some people are nasty, why some people get cancer, why some people have, you know, not just, not just why you have blue eyes like your father. Um, and so that's 1963. Ten years later, she is one of the first women hired at MIT at the dawn of affirmative action on American university campuses. Uh, and she, as I said, she, over a period of about 20 years, she starts, well, she starts out thinking she's not definitely not an activist and she's not a feminist. And she starts out thinking that science is a great meritocracy and that all that matters is that you work hard. It's not going to matter whether, whether you're a man or a woman. It's just about working hard and you will be recognized. And so she does work really hard and she does build up a name for herself. She does get tenure, but gradually she starts to see how, you know, people are taking 
equipment from her. People are taking credit for her discoveries. All these things. And she she really pushes against uh, acknowledging that this might be discrimination against women. So first she says, well, maybe it's the competition on the fifth floor at this at the cancer center at MIT, uh, which was notoriously competitive. So she changes floors and she goes to work on the third floor of the cancer center. Well, there it turns out that men outside of MIT are taking credit for her work. So finally she says, okay, I'm going to leave the field of cancer research and uh, go into a field that's led by women. And maybe that will be different. Maybe that will be more hospitable. And it turns out that it's not. And her first struggle is for lab space. And it gets so bad in that she she goes to the director of the center and she says, I need more lab space. And he says, there's no more lab space for you to have. And she says, well, all these men are getting more lab space. He says, oh, don't be ridiculous. They have the same amount that you do. Um, she knows this isn't true, but she feels like, okay, if I could just present him with the data, I'll, you know, he'll, he'll be convinced. And so she goes around the cancer center at night and she measures all, every lab space and every office space. And she finds that indeed she has not only less lab space than the men, but she is a fully tenured professor, has less lab space than men with without tenure. Um, so that's the first straw. And then the second straw is that she's teaching a class. She's developed a, a very important class for um, bio course for uh, MIT. And she's teaching with another man. And suddenly the department head tells her she's out of this course. The other man is going to teach it with or the man is going to teach it with another man. And then she discovers that these two men are going to start a company and based on this course that she has helped, that she has co-developed, uh, they're going to have a textbook, they're going to have teaching videos, and they're going to, as they tell her, they're going to make millions of dollars. And at this point, Nancy Hopkins is like, okay, <laughs> this is not me. I'm getting great teaching evaluations. This is that these two guys want to go into business together, and this is the way it's always been, and women are, women are suffering here. And that's when she reaches out to some of these other women, and they begin looking into the numbers and start making their case. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the discrimination of women in a world-famous university and how they had to fight to get credit for their work equal pay, lab space, and virtually everything. My guest is New York Times reporter Kate Zernike. Her new book is The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. So there are many parts of the book that made me want to outright scream in pro <laughs> protest, I have to say. One of, them, the one. <laughs> one of them was you're telling of a scientist explaining, I, I think it was at the American Academy of Sciences or something, that the men don't mind listening to women giving scientific papers. They just don't want to have beer and pretzels with them yep. afterwards. Talk about how much gets done, how many careers are made afterwards. That is, during the networking in which women are just simply not welcome. Yeah, so I should say that that was in the... Um that was, I think, in the 1940s that that was, you know, it's all about the beer and pretzels upstairs in the, in the lounge. Um, so that was in the 1940s when the American Academy of Arts and Sciences had not had, I think Mariah Mitchell had been a member, but um, but they hadn't had one since she died. So there was one, basically there was one woman in the entire history of the American Arts, Academy of Arts and Sciences, which of course starts in, you know, the time of the founding fathers. Um, so a long time. Um 
but yes, I mean, this is this is what you see, I think, not just in science, but in many fields, you know, things happen because there's a conversation, you know, over a beer after a conference or, you know, sometimes there were you know, I described Cold Spring Harbor, which is a, a Cold Spring Harbor laboratory in Long Island, New York, um, where, you know, there would be like a really raucous volleyball game. And so something would happen there. But like so a lot of a lot of what happens, a lot of the collaboration or plans to collaborate do happen in these social settings. And so if, if the women are not included in those social settings, um, then forget it, they're out. So Nancy describes, for instance, being at dinners at Cold Spring Harbor. Um, and everyone, you know, everyone who's living on the, on the grounds of the lab would have dinner every Saturday night. And at the end of the evening, this is in the 60s and early 70s, at the end of the evening, the men would go into one room and the women would go into the other. And she, as a female scientist, wants to be with the men, but she knows that socially, you know, culturally, she's expected to go, you know, retreat with the women, essentially. Um, so she does that, and she tries to sort of keep an ear into what the men are doing. But ultimately, that's just no way to to keep up with what's happening. You can't just have your ear on it. You have to be involved in the conversation and have people see you as one of the gang. Um, another woman, Penny Chisholm, who's a renowned marine biologist, um, she talks about, you know, being in meetings and these men would be, you know, talking about the competition, these men would be sort of shooting down one another's ideas and then they would get up and go into the hallway and, and start talking about the Red Sox and be like, oh, yeah, let's go grab a beer. So again, it was this this whole social world of men that the women were not included in and, and felt like, you know, in Penny's world, she felt like there was this playbook that she just didn't have. So Nancy Hopkins wrote a paper which defined a scientific career as following two parallel tracks – real science and professional science. Can you define them for us and tell us why it was almost impossible for a woman to succeed in both? And as a result, as you tell us in the book, many actually dropped out of science early in yeah. their careers. Yeah. So real science is is the part that Nancy especially loves. And I think this was this was the most fun for me talking to all the scientists in the book, male and female, about, you know, what do you love about science? What made you a scientist? So real science is that thrill of discovery, you know, thinking of what's the next question. And it's almost like it, it almost become once you've answered the question, it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not interested anymore. It's that real thrill of the chase um, and designing the experiment and doing the hard work, you know, working sometimes overnight to get to get the result and to figure out the answer to your question. Professional science is essentially making your way in, in your career. So it's uh, attracting graduate students to your lab. It's getting hired by a university. It's applying for grants. It's, you know, it's all the kind of technical stuff, but you can't, it's particularly at the time that I'm writing about, you know, you had to raise your own salary from your grant money. So the university would pay part of your salary, but you were expected to cover a good portion of it using your grant money. So you had to raise grants. Um, so there's a lot that goes into professional science. And what Nancy talks about in that paper is, is that, you know, real science is hard enough because you can't, discovery is not something that happened, for women, I should say, discovery is not something that happens on a schedule. So if you are a woman who is following the usual social norms of, at, you know, some point in your 30s, maybe your early 40s now, but um, you have children, you can't, you can't leave, right? You have, you can't leave the lab. You've got to stay there and make sure that you're whatever, whether you're working with a reagent or trying to see a particular result at a particular time, you cannot just walk away because it's five o'clock and the daycare is closing. 
Um, and by the way, there was no daycare. <laughs> so it's really hard. Like the, the infrastructure for women just wasn't there because the, the world of science is built on the idea that you have a caretaker at home taking care of you know, children for one, but also all the things that all of us need to take care of at home, you know, our laundry and making dinner and, and just making sure that the, the place runs on, the trains run on time, essentially. So it is really hard for women. Um, it it was hard, particularly in the, in the last century, in the early part of this one, um, because there weren't, there just wasn't the infrastructure, there weren't, there weren't daycare centers. It was not, you know, women were not even taking maternity leave because there was such a stigma around it. And that is something that I think really did change as a result of the, of the MIT report or started to change. It's still very hard. And I do think it's still largely a system that, that is built for men by men. What's really ironic is that Nancy didn't have children. She didn't really yeah. have a husband. I mean, she was doing all the work that mm -hmm. men were doing. I mean, she put in endless time in the lab, endless nights. Yeah. Um, so, and she wasn't the only one. So how was it that, but she was still a woman. It, it was still assumed mm -hmm. that she was a sec, she, she was a second class citizen, that her heart was really in having the babies that she didn't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So this was one of the things, you know, when I did this story for the globe in 1999, um, I think there was an, assu an assumption at the time, maybe unexpressed, but that the reason, you know, we had 20 years, 25 years earlier opened up universities to co-education and, and as I said, you know, the dawn of affirmative action. And there was this notion that the doors were open to women in science. So like, why weren't they, why weren't they coming, right? We had all these undergrad, the female undergraduates, there were more female undergraduates, you know, on college campuses. So why are they not going into science? Maybe it's that they don't want to go into science, right? Maybe it's that they can't hack it. And maybe it's that they're so busy raising their children. So what these women taught me, one of the most fundamental things they taught me was that it, this was not an issue of women running off to have children and being too distracted by that, therefore being unable to build their careers. Because half of this group of 16 women did not have children. So you couldn't make that excuse. And one of the one of the key moments in the book for me, I mean, for, for the chronology of the book, but also that made the biggest impression on me, is when this group of 16 women comes together and a smaller group of six of them makes an appointment. They The whole group sends a letter to the dean of science at MIT. And then six of the women go to make their case with an appointment with him. And they're sitting around his conference table and one after the other, he they tell him a very similar story, like a, a different version of a very similar story. and. He, who has four children, looks out and realizes, oh, my God, we've got a problem here. Like, this is not, first of all, it's not, these aren't one-off problems. Like, these aren't the, it's not that he would have thought, oh, it's a personality conflict or this woman has a particular problem, but I can explain them all by their different circumstances. No, this is a problem for women at the university. But the other thing he realizes, like, you know, he has four kids and it never occurred to him not to have children. He never had to think about the choice whether to have children and be a scientist, you know, whether it would hurt his career because he had a wife at home. So I think that was a big that was a big, uh, you know, move forward in our understanding of what was holding women back in science. It wasn't just that they had kids. Hmm. The term sexual harassment is something mm -hmm. that we're all familiar with now. But it took Nancy, as you say, started her career in the early 60s, but it took 30 years for the term sexual harassment to to actually appear. 
Um, and that 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 Nancy went through that at MIT. How did that happen? How did she come to understand this? Yes. How did she come to understand that sexual that that it really was sexual harassment? Yeah. So I think for a long time, first of all, Nancy thought Nancy herself thought that children were the problem, and so she continues to tell herself, well, you know, just work harder, work harder, work harder. She blames herself, right? And thinks, well, there's something wrong with me. You know, As, I'm all not As all the women right, did. As all the women did. Right, exactly. They, right. Had, they, so it's they like, all came up with incredible excuses about what was right, and that's, holding them yes. up. Right. And that's one of the reasons I called the book The Exceptions, because when they were when they were talking to me, it, it became frustrating in a way, because you would hear them and they'd be like, well, but I just figured it was me. I just figured it was just me. I figured it was my fault, or I figured it was just the circumstances. Um, so Nancy, when she first hears about sexual harassment, thinks it has to include sex, right? It has to include the actual act of sex. And it's not that she doesn't, you know, at one point she's assaulted by a colleague and groped by Francis Crick. But um, but I think for her, the idea that sexual harassment might be that you are getting different treatment because of your gender, that was that was a harder hurdle for her, partly because she did want to believe that science was a meritocracy, that it was just about the work that you did. Um, I think also what holds all of these women back is that the the very few women they saw when they were coming up in their careers, the women they saw who uh, raised their hand or objected or said, this is wrong, those women were defined and really branded as, quote unquote, difficult women. And so for these women at MIT, they did not want to be the difficult woman because they recognized, based on the limited experience of the women who come before them, that difficult women, essentially, it could it could end your career. And so they, they just wanted to be scientists so badly. So I think essentially what happened to Nancy is that the the harassment or in you know the harassment because she was a woman not you know it didn't involve sex necessarily but because she was seen as lesser she was a second class citizen she was not given equal treatment equal resources this actually got in the way of doing her science so she could no longer say well i'm just going to ignore this and keep doing my science because it prevented her from doing science so for instance she was trying to get a microscope and she needed thirty thousand dollars to buy it which you know in, in budget terms was not a huge amount um and so one of the reasons she needs this microscope, so because she doesn't have this microscope, one of her postdocs is going to a different building where they've made an arrangement to work with somebody else's microscope, but he's trying to observe a very particular change. And by the time he takes the slide from one building to another, the change that he's trying to observe has already happened. So like, it was just impossible to finish the experiment. Nancy finally, through you know quite a few interventions, gets money for this microscope and the, the postdoc is able to do the experiment in like two weeks. So it, it, you can see all the ways that the being denied resources actually were affecting their science. But I think the women start out thinking, oh, no, it won't get in the way. Or, as I said, that they had to include sex. And if it, if it was just sort of mild discrimination, it was probably just a personality conflict or their fault. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about women scientists and their long, hard struggle for gender equality. My guest is New York Times reporter Kate Zernike. Her new book is The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Kate, there there really were some women who were of exceptions, like the president, a woman named Bunting, who was the president mm. of... Um, of Radcliffe. of Radcliffe and and there were various others who who did who did manage to have children. Some of them actually had good husbands who helped, 
But they didn't. They weren't very, very helpful, right? Because when you compare yourself against them, you figure you come up short. Yeah. So Polly Bunting, who was the president of Radcliffe, she was the first president of Radcliffe to have a PhD, um, and she had this idea that the the issue for women, what was holding women back, was a culture of what she called the culture of unexpectation, right? So that women themselves were thinking, well, I can't have that career. I'm not even going to bother trying. And so she really wanted young women to strive for something bigger, right? To strive for big careers. But she also wanted them to have family. Um, And she expected them to do both. Um, And so, but she wasn't saying like, she wasn't, she wasn't giving them any real solutions on how to do that. Like there wasn't, there wasn't talk of, well, how are we going to get daycare? Or who's going to take care of the kids? You know, like, and she had started her career after – she has a very interesting life. She, um, Her husband, she was widowed, and so she had to work. But but she had, her kids were sort of you know, halfway on their way, way to being raised. When she was – when her husband was still alive um, and she and her kids were small, there's a point in the book where someone at MIT, again, Salvador Luria, actually encouraged her to come to a conference at Cold Spring Harbor to present her materials. And she says, no, 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 I can't. I'm too busy raising my kids. And interestingly – he is the one who says, no, no, we can make this work for you. And then he helps her get a lab at Yale where she works after hours when her husband comes home from the lab. And um, so it's, so yes, it is some of them have husbands who help. Some of them have mentors, men who kind of clear a path for them. Um, But those women aren't necessarily, those women ultimately become kind of, again, they are the exceptions. So two things happen. One, should the women, should other women say, geez, there's really a problem for women here, the men would say, well, no, there isn't. Look at Polly or look at, you know, in the case of MIT, look at Millie Dresselhaus, who's a physicist who had four kids um, and, you know, had a great career. Uh, but those, they were the exceptions. They were the unusual ones. And so the women, you know, junior faculty coming up were saying, oh, my God, you know, it's it was almost hard. It was, they, they felt burdened by the example of these women because those women were such superstars that it was sort of like, well, what's wrong with you? It works for, you know, works for Polly Bunting or it works for, you know, it works for, for Millie Dresselhaus. And so Nancy describes Mrs. Everyone, she was Dr. Bunting, but everyone called her Mrs. Bunting. She describes Mrs. Bunting's influence, this idea that like you had to have kids and you had to have a career, but we're not going to tell you how to balance the two. <laughs> she describes this as the most pernicious influence of the entire, you know, yeah. the 20th century. It's just like, because there was, there was just so much pressure to do both of these things. Yeah. So not a lot of practical advice. No, Nancy Nancy Hopkins certainly had the grounds to sue the university um, for having her course stolen from her by by two hotshot scientists who were actually going to make a uh, a textbook. And I didn't realize before I read your book that textbooks can be extremely lucrative. Yes, and they they thought they were going to make well over a million dollars with their textbook. Um, so why didn't Nancy Hopkins sue the university? This is so Nancy. Ultimately, she has she has gotten this group of women together, and they have begun to gather data. They've begun to work with men to find men who can be their allies, particularly the dean of science, but not just the dean of science, other men too. And ultimately, and working with these women has made Nancy really happy. Partly because she's so happy to have found this group of women, but also because MIT is responding to these claims, because MIT now realizes it has a problem and it wants to do something about this. But she she can't get the course back, and ultimately she does lose this course. She's not, she can't teach it. 
And um, for a variety of reasons, you know, basically they, they delay and delay and delay and it just becomes too late. And she never gets the course back. And then she hears that the men are, you know, they've been told they can't write a book and then they make this effort to try to write it again. And that's when she considers suing. And ultimately, she decides not to sue because she believes in the power of collective action, partly. And also she sees at what happens to other women who have sued, not at MIT, but at other universities. And the women who sued were instantly, as I said, branded, you know, difficult women. There was a one woman in particular, um, a math professor. Math, women in math were incredibly rare at the time, um, real unicorns. And one who had sued to get tenure at Berkeley had been, you know, the newspapers described the way she dressed and that she was, you know, sort of weird. And they talked to her colleagues who would say, well, she just wasn't a very good scientist or a very good mathematician, even though she had you know, she pointed out she had more great results than than other men who had gotten tenure. But it, it became very much about the women's personality and, and the women were run down in public opinion. And so it's, it takes a lot. It took a lot to go through that. And then if you should get through that and win your case, you've actually, you know, you've won the battle, you've lost the war because your career is kind of dead. Sure. Um, so I think Nancy thought she could actually do more science and have more impact on the world well on the on the university i think she was thinking about the impact in the world at that point she ultimately decided she could she could do more good by sticking with a group of women so i want to ask you kate the president of mit chuck vest wrote a letter acknowledging discrimination against women on its faculty why was this acknowledgement so important and what was the result it was really just three paragraphs to introduce the report on the status of women faculty at MIT. But in that, in those sentences, he said, I have always believed that gender discrimination in universities or contemporary gender discrimination in universities is part perception, part reality. True, but I now recognize that reality is, the, is by far the greater part of the balance. And so this was the president of the nation's foremost institution of science and technology saying, this is true. This is not in these women's heads, right? This is not, you know, this is not imagined. This is real. And there had been so many of these reports on the status of women at various institutions. There had been one at Johns Hopkins the year before. Harvard had done a report on the status of female faculty for several years running, and nobody paid attention to them because the administration, all men at the time, didn't didn't bless it in this way and so the idea that chuck vest would do this it was first of all it was mit saying it second of all it was a man saying it and so this made it this this gave credence to the whole thing and so you know the, first of all it, it made it more of a story for me as a reporter at the boston globe my story went out the story you know went viral essentially as much as it could in 1999 so the dean of science shows up at his office the next morning and there's a, after my story appears and there's a CBS Evening News crew outside his door. Nancy picks up her phone and it's, you know, radio in Australia calling her. Then the New York Times puts it on its front page. And suddenly from around the country and around the world, all these women are emailing the main characters at MIT and saying, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only woman who felt this way. You have told me that I am not alone. So, so Chuck Vest's statement was saying to all these female scientists across the country, across the world, you are not alone. This is not in your head. This is a real thing. And we intend to do something about this. I'm, I'm verklempt li listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting tears in my eyes. You might, what was it like for you to realize that your story 
had <laughs> basically, it, well, not to mention just gone viral, but really made a difference for so many people. You know, it was it was thrilling. I think at, you know I was still kind of a baby reporter at the time, and so it was thrilling to see it on the front page of the Times. It was like, oh wow, that's exciting. <laughs> um, but I think I didn't even realize. You know, and I recognize, you know, I've tried to call Nancy as I, as I would any subject I write about and follow up and I couldn't get through to her. You know, that, that was a back in the day of the busy signal. Right. I couldn't get through. Um, so I finally sent her an email. But uh, but it was exciting. And then but I think I didn't even realize until years later how when I when I was living in New York and I had I met another scientist actually at Rockefeller University and she said oh I know the Nancy Hopkins story and then I met other women who talk about what it meant for them and how they got these raises out of the blue because all of these universities were rushing to to fix the problem and so yeah it was it was pretty exciting and I tended to think you know for me it was just about it was just about these these cool women who'd done this interesting thing and shown sort of this very creative way of identifying discrimination and really, you know, leaned into their science and gathering all this data. But yes, ultimately, it was about this story going public. And so the newspaper did play a really important role, which is what you know any newspaper reporter wants to happen. I've spoken with so many people in so many industries whose stories were sort of similar to Nancy Hopkins. Did you, as you were writing the book, feel reverberations in the world of journalism? Oh, God. So, you know, when you said earlier that you were, you, um, felt sort of angry at some point like that was that was definitely an experience for me there was a certain amount of you know I had to figure out because I'm telling Nancy's story I had to figure out I knew that she had this development you know she doesn't start out a feminist she doesn't start act, out an activist when does she realize and so that was that was probably one of the hardest books parts parts of the book but then the other part was sort of thinking about my own journey right so you know, I started out in journalism. I didn't have kids. And, but, you know, once you do have kids, things start to change and people start to make assumptions about what you can and can't do in your career. Um, and, and things start to go a certain way. And you go, oh, is that because I'm a woman? And um, so I definitely went through that myself. And really everybody who read the, you know, my, my book editor talked about the same thing. You know, you read it. And we all had this sort of reaction of we all went through a certain a, a version of the anger that that Nancy ultimately develops in the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I certainly saw this. I saw this in my own career. You know, I say that the reason people ask why I came back to this book in, in, in you know, 20 years later, 25 years later almost. And it really st I started to think about this book in 2018. So that's, you know, nearly 20 years between between the Globe story and my book. And the January of 2018, I was. Uh, Nancy was wondering what to do with her archive, with all of her paperwork from this time period. And I was watching um, the Me Too movement surging. And it struck me that the Me Too movement, while very important, was really only describing a very narrow slice of the problem, which was the very egregious sexual or, or sexual harassment and sexual assault. And that we weren't talking about the problem that I think is more widespread, more pervasive, and more insidious for professional women in particular, which is this sort of day in and day out, just, you know, discrimination and kind of driving you down and making you think you're not smart enough and making you think it's your problem when it's actually sexism. Um, and that we weren't talking about the underlying problem, which is that we still do see women, particularly women in these fields that require, you know, that demand a really high intellect. We, we see women as second class citizens. We see women as, you know, sometimes as interlopers. We think they're not qualified for these positions. Um, and so I certainly, you know, that was based on my own, you know, three decade career in journalism, too. Absolutely. 
Well, I just want to thank you. Uh, it was a wonderful book. Uh, it's a great conversation. And uh, I will tell people that you do come to the Cape during the summer. And um, yes, you. It. I'm hoping that you'll do that. You'll do something at one of the local libraries, and people. Will oh, get, I would will, love to do that. And you're reminding me that you. I need to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you if you want me to, I will um, give you some. Uh, I'll email you some contacts, and you. Can, oh, that would be fantastic. You can yeah, set something great. up. Okay. Yeah, I'd love that. Okay, terrific. Okay. Um, All right. Well. Um, Thank you so much. And, and I, I hope will, we'll meet. We will, we will probably meet at some point. That's excellent. Okay, okay. Ira, this has been so much fun. 